Good morning. Happy New Year again. Uh, have a, uh, thank you. I'm so glad to be alive today. I'm thrilled. So much joy. Um, I missed you guys last week. I missed you greatly, but I do hope that you enjoyed um, our intentional rhythm of practicing our, our Sabbath Sunday practice. Uh, we do that twice a year as a means of corporately engaging in this intentional practice of stopping, resting, delighting in the goodness of God. And um, I hope that you really, really enjoyed it and felt satisfaction in it. Um, we're going to read today uh, the Emmaus story as a way to enter into our teaching together. Um, but as we do, um, I just want you to kind of close your eyes and to receive this word. Um, an ancient practice of the church is called Lectio Divina, and it just means divine reading or sacred reading. And um, my hope is that the words of the scriptures would speak to you, um, not for you to understand or comprehend, but to simply receive as they permeate your heart and mind. And uh, what a way to reorient ourselves here the first Sunday of 2024 than to uh, read the story from which our name derives. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Would you receive the word of the Lord this morning? Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Holy Father, Son, and Spirit, it's a new day, it's a new year, and it's a new opportunity to see your face. But I pray that as you walk alongside of us, that we aren't blind to your presence. Remind those in this room today that may feel like they are walking alone, 
or have not seen you in a while or ever that you see them. Help them to recognize you, Jesus, as you reveal yourself throughout the story of the scriptures. Throughout the community of faith, your bride. I pray that this year we would have new encounters with you, God. Fresh experiences that engage our mind, that engage our heart and our emotions and our feelings and our body. I'm reminded that out of the center of our body flows rivers of living water. May our bodies this year be hosts of your presence. We are your home, Lord. We are your house. We ask that you dwell richly in us and we hand the key over to you once again this new year to have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Friday this past week brought us to the end of the 12 days of Christmas. I have to tell you, I love Christmas, and specifically, I love pagan Christmas. I love Santa Claus. I love presents. I love Home Alone. I am a natural materialist. I like goods. I like to buy things. I like stuff. Like, I'm a product of our culture, um, and I'm being sanctified in that, right? Um, so I love pagan Christmas, just to be totally transparent, all about it. Uh, all the music, like I'm playing Christmas music mid-November. I'm fine before Thanksgiving, that's fine with me. Um, but it was a really beautiful time for us this year with our family because we were able to start new traditions that our little two-year-old could somewhat grasp. And one of those was the lighting of the Advent wreath every single night as a family throughout the whole of the Advent season into Christmas. And my little girl memorized the candles. Each candle, I'd say, okay, say, say, we're going to light the first candle. What's the first candle? She'd say, hope. Yes. Okay, say, say, what's the second candle? Peace. Yes, Jesus brings us peace. And then the third candle, she would get a little tripped up. I'd say, 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 what's the third candle? She would say, love. I'd say, that's the fourth candle, but we'll be there in a second. Then she would say, joy. It's joy, yes. What's the fourth candle? Love. What's the center candle? The Jesus candle. And that moment for me of being able to reorient my family every evening around the, the story of Jesus coming to Bethlehem was such a beautiful time, such a beautiful opportunity. And we were able to do that because we orient ourselves as a family and as a church around the liturgical calendar, the story of Jesus. And as I mentioned, this past Friday, we came to the close of the Christmas season, which is a feast a feast, celebrating the coming of God in the flesh. The fact that God is truly with us. That God is Emmanuel. You know, witness implies a few things that I think are important for us to understand, especially in an age of loneliness where there's this epidemic of loneliness. Um, witness implies a few things. It implies proximity. It implies a sense of awareness that Emmanuel is aware of our journey and our circumstances and our brokenness and our suffering. It implies a sense of closeness and intimacy. It implies a sense of understanding. He gets us. He understands brokenness, unique to all the religions of the world. 
the God of Christianity understands suffering at an experiential level. It also implies sympathy and compassion as well as companionship in the direction with which God is taking human history. Now, these 12 days are not referred to as 12 days just because of a couple of turtle doves, some French hens, or a partridge in a pear tree, but because this is the length of time it is said to have taken the wise men from the east to arrive to meet the young Jesus. 12 days from the east. And the arrival of the Magi serves as a gateway into a new season, as you've already heard us articulate, the season of Epiphany, where we aren't just introduced to God in the flesh, or Emmanuel, but the work of God through the flesh in the ministry of Jesus. The outflow of the incarnation, as it were, the implication of God becoming flesh. And Epiphany walks us through the ministry of Jesus. Now, the word epiphany means manifestation or revelation. And it is in Jesus that the full character, mission, and very image of God is revealed and embodied. Jesus of Nazareth is, and we believe, the epiphany of God the manifestation of God, the revelation of God. Or a better analogy for you might be the window into the nature of God. When we look through the window of Jesus, we see the essence of God. We see it all revealed in Jesus. Now today is also the beginning of a new teaching series called The Great Library. Can you say that? The Great Library. Well done what the Bible is, and how to read it. We are going to be teaching on biblical literacy over the next few weeks. Now, some of you come from high Reformed traditions, and you're like, oh, here we go. Lord, I'm trying to recover from my past experience, right? Um, the good news is, though, you probably have a high view of the Bible to some degree. Some of you come from uh, mainline Protestant spaces, and the only time you ever really heard the Bible was in the lectionary reading on Sunday morning, and that was about it, if we're honest. Pretty low view of the Bible. And if you came from a charismatic tradition, you just encountered the Holy Spirit every single week, and there was hardly any Bible, right? But no matter where you are on the spectrum, I want us to really consider this book over the next few weeks, considering it is consistently the most sold book in the world, as well as the least read book in the world. So we will be exploring what the Bible is and how to read it. But before we dive into it, let me sketch out a few directives for our year ahead so that you kind of know where we are going and why. Is that okay with you to get a little understanding of where we're going and why? All right. Last year, we had two kind of high-level themes that undergirded all of our teaching. The first was confession. Confession. 
We really leaned into the notion of James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. We live amongst what Philip Reef, a sociologist, calls a therapeutic society. We all are seeking healing of some sort. How we describe that healing might be different. What healing is actualized might be different. But we want healing, it seems. And I have come to believe that confession breeds healing, connection. And there's a ton of neuroscience that backs this up, psychology backs this up, like secular studies and data backs this up. And we've wanted to lean lean into it as a community because it's a practice of the church that we've lost. So we've challenged you to join a confession band. Create one. We have our little yellow bands out there as a form of saying, I am joining a confession band. It's an important relational space for us. Bear your soul to someone. Become vulnerable. We have people who are open and willing to journey with you. But you have to choose. It won't be created for you. You have to willingly choose. So confession and the healing produced as a result. The second is consecration. What it means to be a holy people. I mentioned this last year. To be a follower of Jesus is to be weird. Not cool, not assimilated into culture. We are weird, distinct, and unique people and always have been for 2,000 years. But the notion of consecration is to be a devoted people, devoted to God, his person, his purpose, his presence, and his plan for the world. So those were two themes throughout the year. And you can go back and listen to any teaching series as we explored those two themes. This year, the theme is oriented around catechism, which is a big word, and some of you are like, I don't understand catechism. If you grew up Catholic, you're like, come on, catechism, right? (laughs) To put it in simple terms for you, catechism is about theological education or theological instruction in what the theologian Thomas Oden calls classic Christianity. Historically, this is referred to as orthodoxy, which just means proper teaching, proper belief, proper understanding. But we don't just want to teach you what to think. We want to teach you how to think. There's a vast difference. Because, here's why, how we think serves what we think, and what we think serves how we live. I have been marinating on this quote from, of course, Dallas Willard. He says this, we truly live at the mercy of our ideas. Your whole life script, your rhythms, your habits, your behavior, Your inclinations, your motivations are submitted to certain ideas about the world that have been given to you. We all in this room have what some sociologists and psychologists call a mental map of reality. And a map is meant to do two fundamental things. First, what does a map do? It identifies where you are. Is anybody not very directionally oriented? Like you struggle with kind of having an understanding of where you are. Be honest. Come on. Yeah, see? More hands go up. That's right. You just got liberated right there. (laughs) I was driving the other night with Jordan. We were on Lawndale. 
And, and Jordan says, I'm so disoriented. Where are we? I'm like, we're all on like one of the major roads in Greensboro right now. Like, we're not backwoods Guilford County. Like, this is, this is the main road, you know? It's like, I don't know where we are. I'm discombobulated right now, you know? Sometimes she'll think, are we in Jamestown? No, we're in Summerfield, okay? <laughs> Seriously. So a map helps us to identify where we are. And praise God, now we have, like, actual screens in our car that show us where we are in that moment. Praise God. Because my family used to do MapQuest, printing out like five pages of directions. Some of you are old enough to have done like big maps from the gas station that cover the front of the station wagon. And it's all marked up. Like how do you even read that thing? So a map helps us identify where we are. The second thing is that a map helps to direct you in getting to where you aren't. It helps to direct you in getting to where you aren't and or where you want to go. And here's the other piece. Maps are given to us. They are given to us by someone else. And we all have mental maps of reality. There are various streams and channels by which these maps are delivered to us. For some of us, a lot of us, a lot of Gen Z, TikTok, mental map of reality. Social media, mental map of reality. CNN, Fox News, mental map of reality. Certain TV shows, mental map of reality. I know plenty of people who have talked about how this appointed they are in their romantic life because of the shows that they've watched that portray something else. False map of reality. And I love this from M. Scott Peck as a psychiatrist. He said this, he said, our view of reality is like a map with which to negotiate the terrain of life. If the map is true and accurate, we will generally know where we are. And if we have decided where we want to go, and we will, gener we will generally know how to get there. If the map is false and inaccurate, we generally will be lost. While this is obvious, it is something that most people to a greater or lesser degree choose to ignore. And who did Jesus, the epiphany of God, come to seek and save? Those who are lost. So this year, we are going to examine our map of understanding and look at, in the language of Jude chapter 3, the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Not your faith, not my faith, but the faith. Now, the map that we go off of as human beings, as persons, and we continue to reiterate this as a community, and we come back to it over and over again, so that it's embedded into our culture, are stories. The mental map of reality that we have as human beings are rooted in stories. The human map is best understood philosophically, theologically, and even neurologically through story and narrative. So, after this foundational series on the Bible... We will enter into the story of Jesus as told by Matthew. And we will weave in and out of 
the gospel according to Matthew for who knows how long. I'll be honest, it's going to be at least all year. <laughs> yeah, all year, okay? And we will take these foundational tools in this Bible series and put them into application. Because why would we do a series on the Bible and not apply the principles to the scriptures? So, I'm not going to give a lot of scripture today. I'm giving an introduction to where we're going and where we're heading and to kind of get our appetite wet for the future. But much of the thrust for this emphasis this year has come out of recognizing that we live in a time where there are high degrees of misunderstanding, biblical and theological illiteracy. A lot of this is connected to the fact that we don't read anymore. We just Google, or we watch a one-minute clip, or we just listen to a podcast. We live in a time of high biblical and theological illiteracy, and there's a lot of data to back this up, which we can bring into the teaching at some point. There's also a lack of critical thinking in our time as well. We've discussed this at length. We are emotive people. We respond reactionarily. In a hyper-anxious society, you respond with your emotions, not being able to slow down, differentiate, and think rationally about the situation at hand. And there's also, unfortunately a great disconnection from both the global non-Western church and the tradition of the church. As we might be aware, and some of us maybe aren't because we are actually a product of this culture, us Westerners love to take center stage in the world. Just talk to an immigrant. Talk to a person that's not from here. There's actually a book that's out by Joseph Heinrich called Weird, W-E-I-R-D. It's an acronym talking about how weird Westerners are in comparison to the rest of the world. Now, what's interesting is that um, we take center stage whether you are on the left end of the spectrum or the right end of the spectrum. It really doesn't matter. Both sides have offered significant insight as well as created, I believe, significant issues in regards to the Bible. Because often what happens in our world is both sides articulate a partial truth. But that partial truth becomes the whole truth. And the result of such an approach produces both idolatry and heresy. Idolatry and heresy. We're going to get all into the temptations on either end of the spectrum. So you just prepare for our time together, okay? You guys cool with that? All right, good. Sounds good. So usually this half-truth that we receive becomes the whole truth because here's what happens. We discovered that we like it, and it fits our agenda. The person on the right finds something that they really like, and it resonates with their political agenda. The person on the left finds something they really, really like, and it seems to fit with their social and political agenda. But both of these end up becoming the whole truth, producing what is called heresy. Because heresy literally means an impartial or an incomplete truth. 
Heresy doesn't mean the whole thing is wrong. Heresy means it's partially right, but only partially. It's incomplete. So, you holding on, okay? Before we even dive in, I want to set this clear precedent for us at Emmaus. If your reading of the Bible doesn't challenge your preconceived ideas, your perspective, or your party affiliation, and or doesn't change you, then you aren't reading the text correctly. You're like the guy in the commercial I've seen recently who thinks he knows where he's going, and then it shows him taking this dirt road off where there's actually a sign that says, go left. He takes this dirt road. He's like, I got a better way for us to go. And he goes down this bumpy dirt road in the mountains of nowhere. <laughs> like, that's what ends up happening when we aren't careful. And so if you come in today and you're not challenged by what you come across in this, and you aren't willing to change, then you're not reading the text correctly. So half the battle for us, friends, is to have a posture of openness and willingness as we engage the scriptures. And our greatest challenge, I think, with regards to the Bible and much of the heated doctrinal debate isn't always what we read, but how we read. And honestly, most people on the street that have come to these absolute conclusions on either end haven't actually read the whole thing. Nor have they engaged with the historic church or the tradition of the church. So, I realize that was a long introduction for our time together this morning. But I did want to set the course intentionally for us. So now you know kind of where we're going. If you choose to get on, we'll see you next week. If you get off, have a great life. I hope that you find Jesus. All right? <laughs> so, in this series, The Great Library, we're going to ask four questions. Now you can begin to take notes. The first question is this. What's the point? What's the point? What is the point of this? The text is small. It's thin pages. I can't stand the thin pages of the Bible. And it's, it's long. And it's like, what is the point to this thing? The second question is, where did it come from? We're going to talk about uh, canonization, authority. How did we get this randomly? Was it male chauvinism and patriarchy from the ancient times? Who suppressed the voices of women? Let's, let's dive into it. Is it old and outdated? Because we've come so far in our culture. Okay, that means you're going to be old and outdated in about 150 years. But anyway, um, where did it come from? The third question is, what does it mean? What does it mean? We're going to talk about hermeneutics, which just means interpretation. What does it mean when we read this? The fourth question is, what does it do to us? The question of formation. Because, here's the deal. There's a difference in reading the Bible and reading the Bible as Scripture. That's a fundamental truth you guys need to understand. There's a difference between reading the Bible and reading the Bible as Scripture. So those are our four questions. What's the point? Where did it come from? What does it mean? And what does it do to us? And today we'll just serve as an introduction with a couple of caveats for you. First caveat I have for all of us this morning is this. I 
cannot and will not answer all of your questions. You're going to leave this teaching series with more questions than you had at the beginning. I promise. And that's okay. It's okay. But here's my only charge and ask for you and for us for this year in this series. Get into the Bible. Get into it. And when you bump into a question or a frustration, which you will, some sort of conflict or whatever, here's my charge. Keep reading. Keep reading. So get into it and keep reading. The Bible has to be understood in an integrative whole. You can't give adequate critique of a movie if you haven't watched it. We all know those people who, um, and I'm this way often, so I'm just talking about myself, who they're like, have you ever tried this food before? And you're like, no, I don't like that food. And you're like, no, no, have you tried it? I don't like it. Have you tried it? No, and I never will because I don't like it, but you've never tried it. You see what I'm saying? Or with a movie, like we get 10 minutes in, like, this is trash, you know? We'll storm out of a, of a theater somewhere. Um, or we'll just watch the trailer and be like, that's a trash movie. We do this. And honestly, it might be a trash movie, but you can't truly say it unless you watch the whole thing and be honest with yourself. We do this often with the scriptures. And so my charge to us, as you bump up to something, ooh, you just don't like, keep reading. Stay engaged. Stay connected to it. But the first step is admitting that often we come to a place and we just back out because we don't like what we just encountered. That's, that's second nature for us in our time. Here's a second caveat for you. The Bible is hard to understand. Some of you know this. And some of you probably just like, no, it's just pretty plain, simple, true. It's clear. I don't know what you're reading. That's hard. It's complex. Okay? Um, I, I've already gone through seminary and all the things. Like, I, I'm even more confused in some ways. Like, I'm, I'm, I got more questions than ever before. But yet still have a strong confidence as well. It's hard to understand. It is complex. It is jagged. The scriptures might seem weird. They're odd. They're messy. They're confusing and often seemingly contradictory. But thankfully, we don't and we can't read it alone. Because if you read the Bible alone and come to your own conclusions, off on your own in your bedroom somewhere in Greensboro, you're going to go mad. I promise. But we have to remember, this was given to a community. Write it down. That's really an important note. This was given to a community of people covering more than 3,000 years across the globe. So I think there are people who can help navigate these questions over 3,000 years. Sometimes we get a little arrogant in the Western world and exercise chronological snobbery, and we think we've finally cracked the code. And I'm like, eh, that's pretty, like, that's a hubristic kind of posture. That's arrogant. We got 3,000 years to navigate, okay? People have asked a lot of the same questions that you may have before. So, it was given to a community. 
And the thing that it does beautifully is it actually shows and reveals God working in, through, and out of the mess and brokenness of life. You read something in the scriptures and you're like, dude, that is rough. That is hard. That is messy. Did you, did you read that in Judges? What? And then I ask you, look around the world. Does it reflect humanity? Does it reflect brokenness? Certainly. Certainly does. And we see God working in, through, and out of the mess. But it is certainly complex and challenging. I totally get that. Here's the third caveat for you. Just being in it will positively change your life. And this is not some sort of prosperity gospel, none of that. I am saying to you that the way in which this Bible has been constructed and is inspired by God has the ability to actually change your life. There's a study that was done a few years back called The Power of Four that surveyed 40,000 people across the, um, the U.S., the world, I can't remember, and it revealed that there is actual like, increase in like, your experience in life each day that you spend time in the Scriptures, engaging in the Scriptures. And if you spend four days a week in the Scriptures, it has dramatic impact on your mental health, your well-being, your sense of loneliness, your sense of purpose. It's fascinating at just being in the Scriptures and what it does. So, those are just a few caveats for you. Now, I want to give a few high-level notes on what the Bible is, okay? First of all, the Bible is a library, not a book. Mind blown. Until about the 16th century, this, as we know it, didn't exist. Bound up perfectly with some bonded leather, with, you know, uh, right, a thousand pages, table of contents, red letter words for Jesus. Hello, that's helpful. Or index with references that didn't exist. Okay? But also recognize it's a collection of books that has been put together to form this one. But most importantly, we have to know it is a library. And the library has two floors the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 New Testament books. The second thing to note is that the Bible was written by over 35 authors, spanning 1,500 years across three continents in three different languages. You want diversity? Read the Bible. Thirdly, the Bible has multiple genres. History, biography, law, teaching, blueprints. There's like architectural blueprints in the Old Testament. Letters, poetry, wisdom, and apocalyptic literature. But roughly 50% of the whole of the Bible, of the library, is guess what? Story. Narrative. Which means, despite the complexity, there is continuity and a common thread of direction because all stories have direction. 
And all stories have a degree of continuity, even if they're hard to follow. Some of us have read really hard fiction books before, have we not? And it's hard to follow the, the story. But there is, a, there is continuity and there is a thread. Same goes for this grand library that we have called the Bible. Now, the word Bible just means book. And it's interesting, we don't see the word Bible in the Bible anywhere. <laughs> it is, in fact, a grand library. The fact that it's majority story, or right at 50%, some scholars say upward of 70% narrative, also means that the Bible, and this is important, isn't primarily an encyclopedia book of facts. Though facts and truth are contained within this great library, this is not a search engine like Google. That's not how it's meant to work. It can be searched, but that isn't its primary function. So when you approach the Bible with this kind of question, can I blank? You are already missing the entire point and function of the Bible. And I do this myself. Have you done this before? You got on Google, what does the Bible say about blank? Because I want to get confirmation for the way I'm living, blank. I'm just being honest. I haven't seen your browse history, but I know you've done it before. It's not how it's supposed to function. And then what happens is the GPS is telling us, turn around, turn around. You're like, no, 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 I got this. I got this. And the GPS, turn around. Like, you remember Garmin back in the day just yelling at you? Turn around. How do you turn this thing off, man? That's what's going to happen when you approach it as an encyclopedia book or this you know, timeless book of truths. Now, granted, there is truth in the scriptures all throughout, but its primary function is not to be this encyclopedia. Matter of fact, again, the idea of an encyclopedia did not enter into our understanding until the Enlightenment period, okay? There was a lot of life lived before an encyclopedia became a thing. We got to kind of get over this, like, overly rationalistic, Enlightenment way of thinking about um, the, the world. So, now we have to ask the question, what is the Bible for? What's it for? A couple of things for us. The first is that the Bible is for knowing God and who God is. To know God and who God is. The very first verse of the entire Bible, Genesis 1, says, in the beginning, God. The whole of the Bible is revealing who God is to us so that we might know him. God disclosing himself to us. You know, God communicates he communicates. He, he uses his word, the logos, as we talked about, to create this world. So it's no wonder that he would leave a book. He wants to know us and for us to know him, and it reveals himself to us. God could have, sure, given us a fact book or some sort of encyclopedia, as I mentioned, but he doesn't. He gives us primarily a story. Now, you might wonder, why is this? Because a fact book would be much more helpful, God. Would you agree? I would agree with that. Much more helpful. But he gives us a story because, a couple of things. One, facts don't change people. We live in the age of misinformation. You know what changes us? The story that we hear. Stories are what change us. 
If you said to me, hey, Spencer, can you tell me about Jordan? I could give you a bunch of facts. Grew up in Reedsville, North Carolina. Shout out to Reeds Vegas, football capital of North Carolina. She, um, outstanding student. In her senior year, she became Rockingham County's single season scoring champion in soccer, women's soccer. Dominated, became a Wendy's High School Heisman. Got a scholarship to play soccer at Indiana Wesleyan University, study business and finance. Magna cum laude. I was thanked the laude. Anybody? <laughs> yes, God. Like the American education system was perfect for Jordan. Not me. At all. Not me. Sub three GPA. But anyway, um, and I'm your pastor. Trust me. <laughs> um, graduates. It's Mary. I could tell you all these facts about her. But if I really wanted you to know her, I would tell you a story. Let me tell you about a story one time Jordan did this or did this. It would be a narrative. Stories come out of relationship. Relationship. Stories are fundamentally relational. When you hear a story, it's because of another human being. When you tell a story, it's to another human being. Facts are not relational at all. Stories are. And in this grand story, God is revealing himself to us, to know him. The second aspect of what the Bible is for is to tell the true story of God in humanity. So we have know and then we have tell. All stories, as we were taught in, you know, early English classes, have a five-part structure. An introduction, rising action, conflict, climax, falling action, and a resolution. The Bible has a similar approach. Where we come from, or where we came from. What happened? What is happening and what will happen? Now, the basic structure of this drama of Scripture, as it's called, has four main parts. It's important as well. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation or restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Four-part drama of the Scriptures. So when you're reading a text that you're bumping into and you're like, this is hard, man. This is complex. Remember the whole story. Remember the whole arc. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And here's what's fascinating. Sin or evil doesn't exist in the Bible in only four chapters. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. The rest is full of brokenness and God working through it. Through his image bearers. So that's the four-part structure. I love this from the uh, Bible teacher and writer, Yana Connor. Here's what she says. The Bible is God's will put on display. In his grace, God has revealed his good and perfect will to us. We don't have to go searching for it or wait for it to come to us by way of a mighty rushing wind. It's here. 66 books covering the story of all eternity. 1,169 chapters putting his beautiful character on display. More than 30,000 verses unfolding his plan for humanity. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to fret. You just have to read. That's a mic drop right there. That's good. You just have to read. Just have to read. Here's the third piece for what the Bible's for. Is it's meant to shape us as people of God to live in the story. 
no tell shape. No tell shape. This overarching story gives us, it gives me, first of all, a hopeful map of reality. And we are formed by the story which we believe to be true. But believing it to be true, hear me, hear me. Believing the Bible to be true does require faith. It does. We're going to get into all of that. To believe that this book has any sort of divine connection. We're not going to get into the debate yet regarding inspiration or all of the inerrancy, infallibility, authority. We're not going to do that yet. I will get there. But I have to believe in faith that God is revealing himself in this book. That God is revealing the story and telling us the story of himself and humanity. And that it will actually change my life. And guess what? If you go across the world right now, there are countries where this book is illegal because it changes people. People are begging to get this in their country. And we just throw it aside. I didn't really mean to do that, to be honest with you. I'm sorry. I, sorry. I just... God, I'm just like, man... There are, there are women in Iran right now begging for the scriptures. There are people in the underground church in China wanting the scriptures. People who have fragments of the scriptures that are holding on to it, gathering around in secret, walking through this book. Why? Because it changes people. All across the world, it shapes people. If you actually get into it. And are open. Just be open. That's all that we are asking. And we live in a time in society that elevates openness, supposedly. But anyway, that's, another, that's a whole other topic right there. Um, if we're willing and open, it will do something. I promise. So, no tell shape. And this overarching story gives us this map of reality, but it does require faith. It can't just touch your mind. It's got to touch your heart. You've got to want it, man. You've got to have some motivation, some desire, some vision. Now, we still have to ask, what is the main point of the story? This is a story, and it's for knowing, telling, and shaping. What's the main point? Now, you all know that I read quite a bit. I now probably have over 500 books or so in my own library. Have I read them all yet? No, of course not. I'm working towards it. And I accumulate more along the way and Jordan gets very upset at me. <laughs> but I have, I have one book in my library, my personal library, that has the single highest rating on Amazon. Out of all my books, there is one that out of all of them, it has the highest rating on Amazon. 4.9 stars and 13,000 reviews as of this past week. Now, to give comparison before I reveal this book, it's not the Bible, by the way, okay? Something like, he's going to say the Bible. I just know it. No. Not, not so fast there, tiger, okay? 
Uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, 4.8 stars. The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, 4.8 stars. The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, 4.7 stars. These are classics, okay? Henry Nouwen's Life of the Beloved, 4.7 stars. Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, 4.8 stars. And this book, 4.9 stars. 12,000 people out of 13,000 have given it five stars on Amazon. Do you want to know what that book is? It's this, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Insane. I bought this for myself a few years ago. Not for my kids. For myself. And this book that Sally, jo- Sally Lloyd-Jones has written, this, this illustrated book for kids, does what the whole of the Bible is trying to do at the highest of levels. And she puts it best in the subtitle. Every story whispers his name. Listen to what this New Testament scholar, Michael Bird, says. He says, no wonder that every semester I usually meet a seminary student who confesses that it was thanks to reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to his or her children that they learned that Abraham came before Moses, that the Old Testament is not simply a random bunch of Sunday school tales, but part of a single and unified story, and that Jesus is the climax of God's saving plan. Or as the Bible Project puts it, throughout the whole of the Bible and all these jagged complexities and mess of humanity, it is a unified story that leads to Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament points to him. And the whole of the New Testament points back to him. There's a Ghanaian uh, theologian named Kwame Bediako. He says this, it says, Scripture is not just a holy book from which we extract teaching and biblical principles. Rather, hear this, it is a story in which we participate. I love reading Kwame Bediako. He talks about uh, African theology, African Christian theology, because if you did not know, the center of Christianity is in Northern Africa right now. It's not the U.S., I promise. They're sending missionaries here because we're crazy. And he talks about the participatory nature of African Christians in the story. And it goes against a lot of our individualistic and, again, kind of this rationalistic way of thinking about the world, very calculated. You know, we're very naturalistic. We avoid phenomena. We avoid transcendence, even though we long for it. And he's like, no, we are participatory people. And the scriptures in this story is something that we are to participate in. And many uh, among us in our time want to protect this great story, but it doesn't need protecting. Some want to personalize it for themselves, and it isn't about you. Some want to politicize it for an agenda in history, and it only has one political agenda covering all of history. It's the kingdom of God. So if the Bible is a unified story, And if Jesus is, in fact, the main character and protagonist, then our only response as the people of God and as human beings is to participate in it. So, to that, Jesus in John chapter 5, he says, These are the very scriptures that testify about who? 
just as in the Emmaus story, Jesus begins to explain the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, and how they are aligned in such a way that they point and culminate into him. He is the lens by which we enter into the scriptures and read the story. I trust the Bible, not because of the Bible. I trust the scriptures because I trust Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus because of the Bible. I believe in the scriptures because I actually trust that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate and he did in fact die and he did in fact resurrect from the grave. I believe that to be true. I think all other alternative hypotheses are weak and shallow. But our call this year is to participate in this story and just see what happens. See what happens. And they all testify to him. So here is my closing question for you. Because questions allow us to wrestle a little bit over lunch at Santa Fe. Praise God. Or the food court at Four Seasons, depending on your fancy, I guess, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. No one's watching the food court at Four Seasons. Um, although Savaro, no, that dog is, is fire. I'm just saying. So here's a question for all of us. Of which story am I living out of? Of which story am I living out of? I'm not even getting into the scriptures yet. I just want you to ask yourself, the way in which I live my life, where does that story come from? And what is that story? What is that story? And the second is, of which math am I using? And am I lost? Am I lost? In the story of life's unfolding, am I lost? So let us bow our heads for just a moment before we come to the table. If you feel that your mental map of reality today needs to be examined and needs to be questioned, matter your background, where you came from, I want you to just raise your hand today. You feel that, yes, 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 your map of reality needs to be questioned. Yes, yes, come on, come on. I see that willingness, that's willingness, that's just openness. Yes. My second question is if you honestly today, because of whatever map that's been given to you, you actually do feel a bit lost directionless. You've tried out all the things. You've kind of followed the, the script of the story, but you just still feel lost. If that's you, would you also just lift a hand? I just want to be a yes, 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 yes. Beautiful. Not weird. You're just embodying this wrestle. That's good. That's good. Now, if you would, open your eyes. We're going to turn our attention to the liturgy of coming to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Son of God, you have called your people to your table. As we prepare our hearts to receive from your hand, we humbly confess together. Father, we confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. Our actions, affections, and intentions are imperfect and often sinful. 
hear our prayer, O Lord. We pause now for a moment and silently reflect on the areas of our lives that require God's forgiveness and healing. have remembered our sins, we now also remember your words in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Christ, for preparing your people for your table. We turn our hearts and ears to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.